Uh, welcome to Bowie vs. Dylan. I'm Charlie from Minnesota, and I like Bowie. I'm Jake from Washington State, and I love Dylan. Now, the goal of this podcast is to finally determine once and for all who is better, David Bowie or Bob Dylan. Uh, it should be noted that probably that we're not like super experts, we're enthusiasts is the term I prefer. And, uh, you know, so using all kinds of incredibly subjective criteria that don't make sense. But with numbers. We'll probably determine over the course of like 50 podcasts, if we make it that long, who is actually better, David Bowie or Bob Dylan. We're going to need. So, what? <laughs> what? What are you saying over there? We're going to need. One year for every year that they have been active together, even now, because even though David Bowie tragically passed away, he still puts out archival releases. And Dylan <laughs> appears to be still alive. Than We're Dylan not sure. He died, I think. Except for that you know, whole. Uh, never mind. I don't know. Anyway, uh, how about a I'll Nobel Prize? With a little introduction, I want to know, Jake, about how you started liking uh, Dylan in the first place. All right. Tell us, tell us a tale. Weave us this. this rich tapestry of your life. I'm going to weave us a very rich tapestry, and here's how. I want you to picture yourself, Chaz. <laughs> picture yourself. The year is 1980. It's a slushy... Not, not alive yet. Okay. Not alive, Go that's on. fine, but I want you to picture yourself there. It's a slushy night in Bloomington, Indiana. <laughs> it's slushy, always there. And um, John Lennon had just passed away three weeks ago, and the nation was in mourning. Now, what, what we needed was for me to be born, which I was, I was born December 28th, 1980, right in the hot fire of Bob Dylan converting to Christianity, going on stage every night and uh, being a self-righteous uh, person about his new beliefs. And right away, as a baby, I wrote myself a little essay for the Indiana Free Press. It was called, In Bob We Trust? A new Lutheran's trepidation at Dylan's moving from the ideological left to the spiritual right. I was the youngest person ever to win a Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> what is going on right I now? I was three days old. <laughs> now, I want you to fast forward. Uh, let's fast forward 13 years. Let's fast forward 13 yeah. years. Now, I live in Washington State now. We both grew up in Wisconsin. But my yeah. first Bob Dylan album I bought in Washington, D.C. on a family vacation. It was Bob Dylan's MTV Unplugged, and it's a real classic. <laughs> it, had, it, it had some hits. It had some not-so-hits. But it was during the MTV Unplugged craze. Um, I jumped right on that. I don't know why I did that. I was, you know, those were the Nirvana. days. The reason was Nirvana. Probably the reason. Sure. Oh, well, yeah. Oh, oh. It's an awesome unplugged. So, you know. Oh, they did the best unplugged. Probably all the rest of them are really good too, right? For no reason? Yeah. And plus, these were the CD buying days where, like, you just went into a place and you were like, oh, this is $8. I like Bob Dylan. I'm going to buy a random CD by Bob Dylan. Yeah, wow. Which I did. And he was part of my whole constellation at that time. I was a real classic rock guy, boy, nerd. Uh, <laughs> That's all I listened to besides, you know, some choice alternative bands, some Pumpkins, some uh, Pearl Jam, some Nirvana, all those guys were kind of, to me, they were all kind of of a piece for whatever reason, mm -hmm. like loud guitar music, basically. And so Dylan... Well, I mean, like, you know, Pearl Jam worked with Neil Young and stuff. Like, exactly. You know, there to be some spiritual connection there between these guys. I don't know. Totally. There totally was. They call Neil Young the godfather of grunge. Did they, did they call him that? Yeah. Who called him that? 
I don't Did know. That? <laughs> Somebody does. I got it. Oh, like the, the Pixies were the Godfathers of Grunge or something. Well, they probably like black. They're not old enough at that time to be Godfathers. They're not old enough. No, they were. They were right there. They were actually Grunge. We're talking Godfathers. <laughs> they were actually. Oh yeah, sort of. Uh, so you know, Dylan was definitely lumped in with all of my favorites: uh, Led Zeppelin, Tom Petty, The Who, The Doors, The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, Neil Young. You know, um, all those guys on KQRS ninety two point five. Oh, yeah, that was on, baby. I used to play parlor games with my friends and people I wanted to impress. I could name any song on KQRS for sure. <laughs> this was a game. You had friends playing this game? Uh, rock and roll is and was cool, just so you know. <laughs> but classic rock in high school? For sure. But at least my friends were. All right. I'm All sure right. it wasn't actually Keep cool going. in my circles, you know, in small town Osceola, Wisconsin. <laughs> You know, that was my thing. That was definitely my thing, was this was this classic rock music and rock and roll and such. Um, my first concert was Bob Dylan, 1995. In, that was impressive. I don't think I knew that. Yeah, at the Target Center in Minneapolis. Who Guess who opened for him at that time? I, Jacob Dylan and the, wild, the Wallflowers. That's a terrible guess. It was the Jayhawks. Oh. Still together in their original iteration. I think this podcast will be. All right, let's move. Let's move right. I on just want you to know. Jayhawks. I want you to know that this entire podcast is going to be actually about the Jayhawks. <laughs> no, it's not. Shout out. Keep going. Keep shout going. out to Minneapolis, baby. <laughs> um, okay, my first whiff of marijuana. Guess where that was? At that Bob Dylan <laughs> concert. First Bob, it's, it's everyone's first concert is their first concert. <laughs> as far as I can tell, I know it was mine. <laughs> there was a there was a bro right in front of at us X, at X Fest '97. Hey, there you go. <laughs> Bob Dylan was, was not there. I'm guessing. Yeah. Uh, there was a guy right in front of us who looked just like Jerry Garcia when he was still alive, <laughs> passing out passing out a cigar box full of joints to anyone, including the 13 year olds in the back. 14-year-olds. <laughs> like, he didn't care who he was giving these things to. We did not partake. I just want you to know. Myself uh, and Mike Cloutier. Shouts! <laughs> Mike Cloutier is not going to listen to this podcast. But Absolutely not. I, I hope not. Gosh. Poor guy. <laughs> uh, you know, I just was kind of like... I was into Dylan in the same way that I was into other things. I was not like... I did not decide at that time, like, oh, this is my this is my guy. Like, this is the person uh-huh. I'm going to become obsessed with. I did. I remember uh-huh. I did an essay um, on Ballad of the Thin Man. That's the one about uh, Mr. Jones. I did that. I, yeah. <clears throat> who was the supposedly mean English lit teacher that everyone disliked, but she she liked us a lot? Do you remember? Oh, uh, I was talking about her the other day. Mrs. Oh. Don't know, lost it. Oh, I was really hoping you knew that. Anyway, I seriously was just talking to her about her yesterday because somebody used the password tense of the word sneak as snuck. Uh huh. Can't do and that. And I happen to know it's sneaked because of this woman who yes. talks about this is one of her like. <gasps> oh, you know. No, it's not Ludvigson. What is her name? Anyway, well, she gone. was she was supposedly. It'll come, it'll, it'll come up in the middle of this podcast later on, and we'll shout it out. And it won't oh, matter. please do. It's really hurting. Well. It's really hurting my feelings. I can't remember. Um, she supposedly this very severe person and she uh-huh. she certainly was in some cases but she's very smart good teacher i think she had uh-huh. um one of the first things that i i was like oh dylan's different is she had famous uh you know men and women of literature on her wall and bob dylan was okay. one of those people like wow. along with like thoreau and waltman or whitman excuse me and uh-huh. so i was like whoa this guy you know <laughs> This guy made it past this woman's, you know, know. detector. 
Sounds good to me. Sign me up. Okay. Um, I, before he won the Pulitzer, too. Way before. Um, so I had like Highway 61 Revisited. I listened to that all sure, the time. Sure. I had Bringing It All Back Home. Um, you know, the real, like, the real classics. Just like I had the Who's, who's Next. Yep, I had Blonde on Blonde. Um, you know, but it was no different than like having Harvest by Neil Young or something. Like it was like, yeah. these are the classics. And I, I did, I listened yeah, to it yeah. all the time. Yeah, but okay. something changed a little bit when I got Time Out of Mind. When he made his comeback. Now, that, him, is that the that's, late 90s? That's the 97, 1997 okay. album that was like his big comeback. Okay. Like I kind of shudder to think. Longer. I feel like I remember that. I shudder to think what would have happened to his like legacy if he if he didn't do that. Because he came roaring back, he won all these Grammys, he was on, I was reading Rolling Stone and Spin, like he was cool again, he was cool again, um, So, and that was his first decent album at all since 1989, and his first classic since like the late 70s, I want to say, okay. so that was like a 20 year drought of classics. Right, right. So that was when I kind of, you know, picked up on his personality and his story, like the, uh, to me that kind of added the narrative uh, the personal narrative to that, mm-hmm. like, oh, this comeback, and then I started looking back, you know. Because a, a proper obsession with a musician, you know, it starts with the music, but at some point it shifts into his past that, to the point where you're so interested in them as a person that you, like, buy all their bad music. Correct. And I won't you know, say... Like, there's some shift there where you're more, you know, yeah, yeah. I won't so say that happened to me... About here. That didn't happen to me then, but it, it started. There was, like, the inkling, you know, of what, of that... And then in college, I was really exposed to the impact of that trilogy, which I already had, um, the Bringing It All Back Home, Highway 61, and Blonde on Blonde. But added to that was um, his bootleg series number four, volume four, was the Royal Ar- Albert Hall concert, which is this apocryphal concert that um, was maybe the most famous bootleg in the history of bootlegs. Like okay. This concert got passed around amongst everyone, and it was the one where the... Um, the audience member screams Judas at him. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And yeah, he uh, he goes, uh, I won't swear on this podcast. He says, play it effing loud. <laughs> and they, right, they well, rip into... How dare he plug in his guitar? Yeah, yeah. This was it, the... It's, it's definitely the same thing as betraying Christ. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> oh, man, he's got a quote. I'll find it when we're in the 90s. Maybe it's in the 2000s. He's got this quote where he responds to uh-huh. it. It's the best thing I've ever heard. Anyway... <laughs> So this was like a new type of narrative, you know, clashing with the music. Like the music is monster to me. Like this is my favorite kind of rock and roll ever. This like ripping rock and roll with the band. He's like doing his whole, this is full Bob, full Bob to me. And so I really got obsessed with that. At the same time, after I met Brooke, uh, FYI, now my wife. Ooh. I remember her. Yeah. Yeah, she's a good one. <laughs> I think we've met. Yeah. She's all, she's all right. Uh, she independently discovered Dylan in his quieter earlier years, which I had sort of okay. dismissed. This is like blowing in the like wind. Like his, his really early folky years, like early 60s then? Yes, correct. Like 63. The, pre, the pre-Judas years? Just before Judas, yeah. Okay. Um, which I had kind of dismissed always because that contains Blow It In The Wind. And that's that's a weird narrative. It's not weird. He was part of the civil rights movement. Um, right, right, right. I shouldn't put it down. I think it meant a lot to a lot of well, people. You know, but it's we'll, not my we'll favorite music. Whole, we'll get to that whole period. Sure. It'll come up in, in some future podcast. Sure. But what Brooke was able to do was she listened to these albums 
and they're very, you know, they're quieter, they're more introspective. It's just him and the acoustic, and they're just beautiful. Uh-huh. And they're like quiet Sunday morning kinds of things to okay. listen to. And so we did that together when we were dating. And um, so I got, I got kind of obsessed with that. And then as I got out of college and through the 2000s, and I can't cite many more specific things, I just started picking up and becoming obsessed with different stages of his, of his career. Because he, right. like Bowie, was a restless. He just moved from thing to thing to thing. Right. And maybe not quite as much as Bowie, but you know, yeah. I'm no, like maybe that. not. Well, we could argue about that. There's like <laughs> maybe the, not as dramatically. Maybe the shifts aren't as dramatic as Maybe Bowie. not. Maybe that's but, more what it is. So, like, I loved his country late 60s. I loved his suddenly happy early 70s. I loved, <laughs> you know, this, uh, this Woodstock thing with the basement tapes. I love, he kind of turned into a gypsy in the late 70s. He had this gothic acoustic kind of thing going in the early 90s. And then, of course, um, his later years where he turned back into a rock star kind of. Uh-huh. Um, and it seemed to me at that time... And now, like, and now his current period where he's for America's <laughs> Greatest Songwriter who stopped writing songs and was covering other people's stuff. I want right? you to cut him some slack. <laughs> I will not. You will. You will. I went out on a gigantic high... And Dylan's just kind of middling right now, and we need to make sure that everyone knows that. His story is not done yet, Charlie. <laughs> he may right, have... your, yours is. My turn. No, hold on. I have one more thing. I have one more thing. I loved all of his stages, and I was trying to ask myself, like, why is this the guy? Because I'm not prone to this sort of, like, music hero worship. I don't, yeah, I, I, I don't necessarily care about somebody's, like, life in response to their music. I, I love people's music, you know, I love getting albums, I love that kind of a thing. But I think that it's because Dylan doesn't need worshipping. Like, he doesn't care at all about it. And it, like, kind of makes me laugh. Like, I think there's a lot of comedy in his career and a lot of comedy in his narrative because he'd do this thing and everyone get just totally up in arms, like an outsized reaction to the things that he was doing. And he didn't care at all. And so I think that he could sort of be... He could sort of be like um, examined as sort of his art can just be examined because he didn't. I don't, you know, not a lot did he try to do something like here's this thing that I would like you to like that I want it to be popular. He would just be, well, here's this, here's the thing that I'm going to do. I'm now a country crooner. Uh-huh. Have at it. So there you go. There we go. It's all you. Go Bowie. So, all right, go boy. I don't feel like my story is as good as your story, but I'm I could anyway. I'm I could have really gone long and longer. really boring. It's my goal. Um, so I was not like into music as early as you were. You know, I know you were. You know, wait, hold on. Thirteen, being hold all on. into this. Hold on, just a second. Yeah, this is already boring. Go ahead. Oh, I was talking about you, and it's already boring. Okay, <laughs> sounds good. Set yourself up for that one. Anyway. Um, it wasn't until I was probably in like late mid to late high school that I started really getting into music and listening to a lot of music. I think I had trouble finding stuff that I was really interested in because classic rock, like where you were listening to at the time, didn't interest me as much. I had some more classic rock people. I like. I really liked Pink Floyd. I wasn't into the Who, but it just wasn't as much as thrilling to me at the time. And um, and so towards late high school, I started you know, reading more of these magazines and stuff, finding more stuff online. The, the then burgeoning, we're talking late nineties, early two thousands, the like. Uh, Napster and stuff is coming up like we've, we've discovered that and so I'm getting really into more like new music and more underground new music and more experimental and like electronic stuff and um, and a lot of those big rock bands happening in the whole that whole new wave whatever resurgence thing in right around 2000 
bands like the White Stripes and the Yeah Yeah Yeahs and those guys. I got into the Flaming Lips and uh, and that whole like weird rock and roll. It's just they were the guys at that time, you know, just all kinds of stuff happening at the time. And as I moved on and kept listening to more and more music, I found that I would my interest would like start going farther back. Like I was still interested in new music, but then like in early college, I started listening to more '90s stuff, and in late college, I started listening to more '80s stuff. And then right after I graduated from college in 2006, I started listening to more like '70s stuff that was mm. like just making my way back. And uh, of course, if you're getting you know my, my building an interest in weird '70s music, well, where else are you gonna go but Bowie? And of course, Bowie did in my orbit. You know, he's such a famous guy and so much stuff going on like this had come up before and I'd, even then like felt kind of like an interest like this is a guy i could see myself getting into he just seems so fascinating it's so weird and there's so much different stuff going on he's jumping genres all over the place which i love when artists do that try mm. different stuff and do completely different things i don't like when artists get static and, and keep making the same albums over and over again that, that i get bored apparently um, but I didn't buy my first Bowie album until the summer after I graduated. Oh, summer, sometime, sometime in the year after I graduated from college. Wow. Yeah, I know. And that, that's interesting. Surprising. And I was already into other guys. Like, I already had a couple of Brian Eno albums, which those two go together a lot of the time because they you know, yeah. collaborate and everything. Um, but I think at least part of it with Bowie is he's like he has an intimidating discography. Like, and then Dylan's like that too, is they've got so much stuff. It's right. like, where do you get started on this? And Bowie would have so many different genres. Like, which one do you want to get started? Which one are you interested in? And I remember seeing that about a few different artists at the time. You know, I remember the one that really pops up is Elvis Costello was another one. Like, mm. I was interested in it. I liked some of his music, but I didn't know where to start. And uh, if you start in the wrong spot, you know, sometimes then you don't you get the wrong album. You sometimes don't like them. The 70 was Sonic Youth. My first Sonic Youth album was one of their bad ones because mm-hmm. I saw it at you know, a used store for two bucks or something. I went, yeah, Sonic Youth, I've heard good stuff about them. And then I didn't like Sonic Youth. I didn't think I did for a couple of years until mm-hmm. I realized I had one of their bad albums. Right. <laughs> they had good albums. Right. I love them. So my first Bowie album, I bought it. I, I lived in this kind of dumpy apartment, my first apartment out of college. And there was a use a disc go around. Uh, remember disc go around? You are dating this podcast. Go. Oh. You're dating us, man. Dating us. Yeah, that's all right. Disc go around for like five blocks from my apartment. And I was unemployed. I had no money. And so, of course, I every time I wanted something new to listen to, um, I'd like pile up, you know, five or ten discs that I did not like anymore and didn't listen to anymore or maybe never liked in the first place. I'd bring them down and I'd sell them and then use that to buy one or two new, something new. Sure. And so, and I just, you know, I, I remember like there was time for it to be, you know, there'd be these used places and I would just sit there and literally go through every single thing that they had available used. I wasn't looking for specific stuff. I was just looking and you'd pull out whatever you wanted, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I, my first Bowie album was, uh, was low, which is actually wow. still my, it's my favorite one. Good one. And the reason why I bought it, cause I was, um, because Pitchfork had recently done their Best of the 70s feature, and uh, they named Low a number one album of the entire 70s. That's right, I remember that. So I that. thought, well, this is like, which is a pretty bold choice. I don't think anyone's saying, you know, they're like the only ones saying it's the best album of the entire decade. I just There's wanna... lots of people saying it's really, really good, but that's, that's a bold choice. Even even I, as gigantic of a Bowie fan as I am, am not sure I would put that Bowie album as the number one of the entire 70s. I'll be honest, it's kind of crazy. Um, and I got it, and I, I didn't get it. Like, I didn't understand that album. It did not make sense to me for a little while. And I was still interested in Bowie, and and so it probably happened a couple more times at the same little rinky-dink disco round. Um, I bought Station to Station, 
and I bought uh, Ziggy Stardust. So wait, hold on. So you didn't understand Lowe. What made you want to buy more David Bowie? I was kind of fascinated by him as a person. And okay. again, like, I kind of got to this point where I realized, you know, sometimes I bought the wrong album, like, to start me out on this person. Yeah. And so I was willing to give another shot. And these things, you know, it was cheap. And again, you know, this is a time when you could still get good use CDs for four or five bucks or something, you know? Totally. And, um, and no one cared. You know, Bowie was not in, a, like, a really popular time. This was during his great 10-year retirement. So he was not, like, super hot on anyone's list at the time, like... Like he is now, for instance, in the wake of his death. Right. Um, and so I got him cheap, and I kept it. There was enough there that I was interested and curious, but I didn't quite get it. And so Station to Station was my second one, and then Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust. And ironically, those three are probably my top three Bowie albums still. And at some point in there, like, it hmm. went from just kind of a slow-growing thing to just clicks. Like, it just went, like, boom. Like, wait a minute, holy cow, this is David Bowie. And, um... And then I was super obsessed. And then, because he's got so many classic albums in the 70s, I started chasing down as many of those as possible. So I got Heroes was an early one. I got um, Aladdin Sane, Hunky Dory, mm-hmm. uh, Scary Monsters, and Super, you know, these are the really big ones. Space Oddity, all, you know, the big ones from that time period. And from there, like, things just kept, he just kept being so fascinating to me. The guy's so crazy and weird and switching genres, and his lyrics are so deep and meaningless at the same time. And, <laughs> And, uh, and, yeah, and all the, the genre shifts and the complete of her characters. So at some point, you know, the big jump is to move from Bowie since the 70s are wall-to-wall great. Right. 1969 to 1980, there's barely a misstep the entire time, musically anyway. Personally, he had all kinds of missteps. Well. Uh, and so I don't remember how he finally made the jump from that period to, to everything else. Because everything else is, you know, not bad, but it's not that classic era for him. Sure. Um, I remember moving to his early stuff first because there isn't much early stuff. So I thought, if I'm going to collect some, some bad Bowie, I might as well start with the early bad Bowie because there's not very much of it. You know, I only had one album before Space Oddity and a handful of singles. Moved into the 90s with his, uh, he collaborated with Eno again in 1995, so that one got me there. I do remember when um, the next day, which was his 2013 return, he mm-hmm. hadn't released anything in 10 years. Uh, when that was announced at first, I was still at a point in my like liking of him. I wasn't positive I was going to buy the brand new album. Like, I was right there, like, what? do I buy everything with him, everything new? I bought it, but wow. I wasn't positive because I was still working on building out my older collection. I see. And then, uh, by not long after that, I had everything, and, you know, here we are. And now uh, I'm starting a podcast about it. <laughs> Things moved pretty quickly after with that. A, with a cameo appearance, appearance from Bob Dylan. Yeah. Um... I just have one thing to say about your narrative, which wasn't yeah. it wasn't actually that boring. The correct response to the best album of the 1970s <laughs> is Led Zeppelin Four. No, it's not. It's Led Zeppelin okay. Four. There's that's a perfect perfect. I think I think album. personally, mine is Dark Side of the Moon. Oh, that's a good, good one. Too. Dark Side of the Moon. All right, that's not but, 1969. You know, that's in the, no, that's 73. And the other the other nine in the top ten are all by David Bowie. <laughs> Plus Dark Side so, of the Moon. That's all, I would, the only top 10 Dylan album I would put would be Blood on the Tracks for the 70s, I think. Yeah, that sounds fair. But, I don't have that one, but it sounds fair. Oh, it's top five. <laughs> top, top five all-time Bob Dylan, which is top five all-time all right, all right. of any album ever recorded! Well, slow down. Slow all right. Down. All right, so we are at... So the thing is, I, no, the interesting thing about these okay. two guys is in their long and checkered careers, 
and I don't know, checkered is, you know, I mean, whatever. Uh, Definitely checkered. They surprisingly have had little interaction with one another. Like, we were looking through this it's in preparation crazy. of this podcast to see if they'd ever actually shown up in a recording together, and as far as we can tell, they haven't, which seems weird. Like, Bowie in particular has, has collaborated with so many different people and so many big people in so many different ways, you know, good and bad. I just feel like it's amazing to me that, you know, in the 80s, they, they never did, you know, uh, Bowie was on, sort of on, uh, Do They Know It's Christmas?, and you told me that Dylan was on We Are the World. <laughs> oh, is he ever? Like, these guys were doing this junk like that, but they didn't apparently ever do the same one. We can't even get them for that. So we could be wrong, but as far as I can tell, there is no time when they were actually in the studio together. Or and, I can't even tell like that they were ever like did a concert together, or like that they were ever at you know some giant. Like I can't find anything like that either. No, like no concert so for if, Bangladesh or no, no benefit because this was the age of the benefit there, concert. Oh yeah, that kind of stuff was happening all all the time today, the nineties. And if it's out there, we haven't discovered it. So, anyway. Um, so I was looking at this in preparation for this podcast. Uh, to some of their actual connections and their more direct connections. Okay. And what I found was that there's a lot from Bowie's end towards Dylan and very little from Dylan's end towards Bowie. Now, this is partially like that Bowie came a little later at the party. He's a little bit younger. Um, yeah. he, actually, he actually didn't start recording much after Dylan. And Dylan's first album was 62, correct? Uh, 61. 61, okay. But his first single was 64. Okay. When he was 17. Wow. But, um, but Dylan started out with, like, amazing albums, just, you know, and was important and relevant immediately. Yeah, can and I Bowie just... Bowie spent five years making stupid singles and a bad album and... Trying to start his career. This ridiculous song with, uh, chipmunk-style lyrics, like, and... And then he finally hit it in 1969 when he released Space Oddity was actually when things started moving for him. Right. So he puts him like a little bit farther back. And by then, Bob, by then Bob was like on his like fourth chameleon change or oh, something yeah. of the 60s. Well, to be fair, Space Oddity was also Bowie's fourth chameleon change. It's just that nobody cared about the first three. Right. So Bowie started in R&B, then moved to mod, then moved to like this kind of dance holly like, I don't know, sort of kinks at their most English type thing, and then moved into folk, inspired by Bob Dylan and did Space Oddity. So I was looking through and trying to figure out what the other connections could be here. So Bowie comes across as this, like, super fan, but I, I don't know if he actually was looking at it further, but, but let's get into the super fan start. Bowie has covered Dylan at least four of Dylan's songs in different capacities. Right. The first one was uh, She Belongs to Me. Yeah. She's got everything she needs. She's an artist. She don't look back. I won't sing the whole song, but I know I'm you want me to. I'm looking forward to you doing that just every song that I come I'm going to go. I know anyway, all these songs. There's, that's, I can't find any recordings of it, but Bowie did currently cover that regularly. That is an odd choice. In, in 1969 when he was in his Rocky phase, which makes sense. Okay, all right. So then, moving forward, we get to, he didn't do any covers of Dylan in the 70s or 80s. Oh. But in 1991, he was covering Maggie's Farm. That's crazy. No way ain't gonna work on Maggie's Farm no more. There it is. There it is. So he was, um, this was, in 1991, he was in a band. He started a band in the late 80s called Tin Machine. Great which band. Was awful. Great Let's band. Just make sure everyone Great. knows it's awful. Great band. So after, you know, 20 years of incredibly <laughs> successful solo career, he decides to start this, like, pseudo-grunge-ish hard rock band called Tin Machine that made awful music for, like, four years and then quietly disbanded to everyone's relief. Um, so they, they covered Maggie's Farm live regularly. 
And uh, so one of those live recordings shows up as a B-side to some, I don't know, didn't write down what single it is, to one of their singles in 1991. Okay. So it is available. It's out there. It's bad. It's really you know, bad. <laughs> it's not his worst Dylan cover, to be fair. Oh. It's, probably, well, it's probably his best, actually, now that I look at the list. This is the best Anywho. one? Okay. Well, I mean, it's, it's low standards here, Jake. When yeah. it comes to Bowie covering Dylan, we'll not not low the best album of the seventies, but low no, as in no, no, the, no. the bar, yeah. like low, low bar. bar. We got low it. Bar. Um, so our next one then is like a Rolling Stone. Once upon a no. time you dressed so fine, threw the bumps and dime in your prime. Didn't you? Didn't you? Even I can see that one. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, and so there's more of a story of this, and I, I'm gonna need your like your your participation in this, Jake. Okay. Because it goes back to Mick Ronson. Oh, which baby. There's other connections here. This is so great. Mick Ronson, most famous as the lead guitarist from the Spiders of, from Mars, yeah. which was Bowie's uh, backing band through his prominent early period, including his big glam period with Ziggy Stardust. Right, his and first And they actually showed up first with Man of Soul, the, the World. They were on Dory. They're on Ziggy Stardust. They're on Aladdin Sane. And they're on Pinups. This is like really epic five album. Yeah. Actually, Pinups isn't that great. The other four are really like four of Bowie's best albums. Really important. <coughs> and really, really important to getting this whole thing started and that whole, the whole glam era. And then Ronson and the rest were kind of unceremoniously dumped by Bowie because just like he ditched musical styles like nobody's business, he also seems to have ditched collaborators like nobody's business at different time periods. Something he shared um, with Dylan, by the way. Although a lot of them came back in different capacities through the years, like sometimes decades later. Wow, so Ronson kind of got dumped. They didn't even know it was happening. It was the last, uh, <laughs> the last show of the tour, and it actually is available live. It's it's one of his official live releases. The last show in the Ziggy Stardust tour. At the very end, before the last song, he very famously says something. You know, oh, we're so glad you're here with us. You're so glad you know, you're here because uh, not only is this the last song, the last show of the tour, but it's the last show we'll ever do. Thank you. And the band's like, whoa, whoa. wait, wait, what? That's what? awesome. David, uh, let's, play, let's play the song. I'm going to play the song, I guess. Oh, DB? DB what? This is how he announced it to them as well. <laughs> That's crazy. So there's all kinds of stuff in the news at the time that Bowie's quitting rock and roll. Because he just said it. He was, you know, nebulous enough that he wasn't quitting rock and roll. So he did actually make one more album with them. It's a covers album. <laughs> it's a really strange release in his catalog. And when is 1973, that? 1973. Okay. He's already, like, very successful glam rocker. Um, and he does a covers album of all these songs from, like, 66 to 69. Okay. In 1973. Weird. So be like, you know, if you right now did the covers album of a bunch of songs from, like, 20, 2009 to 2012 or something. The Ancient Past. Or maybe more recent than that. Yeah, it's just, it was really, really kind of a strange choice. So they're on that, but then uh, but then they're gone. And so Mick Ronson feels real bad about this. He starts, he tries to start up a, a solo career, which Bowie does help him with. So it's not like he just gets dumped and that's, you know, that's it. Like Bowie tries to help him with a solo career, but Ronson, well, it, you know, a totally sweet axe slinger, uh, <laughs> yeah. say that probably does not have the charisma or the drive to be a, a leading man. Right. And this, his albums kind of tank, but he's like getting low, getting down there. Yeah. And he has a resurgence in 1976. With who? With Dylan. That's it. Take take the story here. Okay, so I just want to reframe the last part of Charlie's story. Um, Mick Ronson, just the sweetest guy in the world, like literally like the dearest man, I think. He <laughs> probably, as a collaborator, collaborator with uh, Bowie, it was probably like a 51-49 kind of a thing for Bowie's fame. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Ronson probably is like the 51, and Bowie just underneath at 49. So, <laughs> I, I mean, that, but yeah. for Bowie... He's extremely important. It's got to be It's got to be pointed out how important he was to Bowie's really. Bowie yeah. just, Absolutely. just dumps him, just throws him in the street. <laughs> just gar- like a piece of garbage in the trash. Okay, all right, all right here. And Ronson <laughs> being the... Back to Ronson being the know. dearest English man... <laughs> Uh, that has ever been known. Can we, uh, can we quickly talk about the fact that every <laughs> early seventies English sideman was named Mick? Yeah, like, that's awesome. Hey, oi, Mick! I think Mick you had Ronson, to be. There's like, but we had like three Micks in his in, in Spiders from Mars. Well, One there of them like changes like went by Woody instead because there are too many Micks around. Too many darn Micks. So, keep going. Keep going. Okay. Well, I read this. Uh, this is a band led by Mick Jagger. It should just be called the Micks. It'd be so great. Oh, it's the mix. Keep going. Keep going. Uh, uh, Ronson, being um, sensitive as he was, um, <laughs> and, you know, and undeserving, like a personal friend of yours, or something? <laughs> undeserving, <laughs> undeserving of such treatment, descends into alcoholism and drug abuse, like everybody They're else in there. They all were. Everybody else in the seventies, including Bowie and Dylan. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, he's just laying in the, in the street crying to his wife and, um, <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> so uh, you read that, did you read, you read that interview in uncut magazine? He keeps I saying, yeah, I read oh it. my gosh, it's the greatest. He keeps saying, uh, instead of the F word, he keeps saying F O O K I N. So I won't say it cause yeah. it's, it's so great. Anyway, he says it like a million times. So he he somehow ends up in Greenwich Village right around the time that Dylan is recruiting, and we're going to talk about this in 1976, but he's recruiting for his Rolling Thunder review, and he's literally, Dylan that is, picking musicians off the street and being like, you know, he, he met a violinist walking across the street named Scarlett Rivera, and he hired her for two years to be part of the Rolling Thunder review. So there's Mick Ronson, and, you know, Dylan wasn't, Super aware of things going on around outside his musical sphere, but I think that he probably he knew who this person was for sure. Um, and so he picked him up and like gave him a gig as the Rolling Thunder review guitarist, and he's on the album and everything for like two years. So he like you know Mick that is is he's he's a little he's a little sad sack in the article, but he's like he he fucking saved my life, Dylan. <laughs> He did it, you know, <laughs> Bowie. I was so confused and fucking this and fucking that. that. That story is from like '76 or something. The yeah. article is from the '70s, right? Yeah, it's from then. Okay. So he's okay. like, he's like wasted giving this interview and like talking about how Bowie, <laughs> Bowie's such a jerk and Dylan just a saint, just an angel. <laughs> all right, all right, I'm all right. Done. So there we go. Hey. So wh- so that we, we what this article is not cover because it's from the mid '70s. <laughs> I just the, the story ends there as we, far as I'm concerned. We move forward a few, you know, fifteen years or something, and Bowie and Ronson actually like make up. They uh, they they get back together. They're, they're pals again in the uh, in the early nineties. Whenever when and, all the music uh, was great. What's that? When the music was great, just great. <laughs> the music was great. It was so great. <laughs> and uh, well, Bowie was like getting better in the early nineties. Yeah, that's <laughs> never that's never good for people's you music. Can't go up a lot. Can't go spread it out. So they, they kind of get together, they make up a little bit. Um, Ronson shows up, plays some guitar on Bowie's 1993 album, Black Tie White Noise. Good album. Um, and then 
Bronson's like trying to you know stage his own like solo comeback of sorts, so he never had a solo career in the first place. Uh, and so he's putting together an album, and Bowie contributes. Bowie at some point, and it's unclear when it was actually being recorded in the first place, but Bowie recorded like a Rolling Stone. It sounds like it was probably like 87, 88. Good times. I was reading, they weren't really sure. Had recorded a cover of, of like Rolling Stone that wasn't used, he didn't do anything with it. Um, and so he donated that to, to Mick Ronson for his solo album. So Ronson uh, puts a totally sweet Ashley in <laughs> solo on top of this, on top of this piece. Uh, Bowie, he, he must have, I don't know if he re-recorded the vocals for the whole thing, but he did something with it, because you can hear him saying, like, Take it, Rono! <laughs> you know, which all good songs have a call-out like that. Totally. I mean, to be honest, the solo is, is it's pretty sweet. I mean, is it but just But the song ripping? is just awful, it's so bad. So this shows up on Mick Ronson's solo album, so it's with Bowie singing and everything. You know, it's it's officially a Mick Ronson track, but it really, it's, you know, it's a, it's a collaboration between the two. It's Bowie. Um, but... Uh, Ronson died before the album even came out. Holy, I didn't know that. Yeah, if I remember right. It's either his, no, no, I gotta look it up, because I'm thinking, like, it's either his last album, or it, uh, it came, I don't wanna say it came out after he died, though. Hold on, I'm gonna take a little quick look while we're, while we're talking this over. So, they managed to do this, like, full-blown cover. It's the biggest, like, it's the, it's the true, uh, let me see here. It's the, the one truest studio cover that he did of Dylan. Okay, okay. But Mick, but it was for Mick Ronson. Yeah, it, it, I was right. Yeah, it came out after. It was only his third album. So he had this, the two in the 70s where he was trying to start up his career, the first of which included quite a bit for work for, with uh, with Bowie, and I don't remember if Bowie appears in the second one. And this was his first album, been in almost 20 years. And right. yes, it came out after he died. So, that's our Mick Ronson tale. Kind All of right. sad, sort of details. Indeed. So, and then the third... I'm just glad the, Bowie was fourth, there. What's that? I'm just glad Bowie was there to save his life. His, you know, now that he's a now that he's a fucking angel. <laughs> Hanging out with Bowie right now. Oh, totally. Oh, they're just yeah, kicking for it. Sure. They're kicking it. They're they're just squeezing out some tasty licks. All right, quick note. Together. Quick note. We're at thirty-eight minutes. Okay. <laughs> I know, it's gonna be a forty-five minute or anyway. That's fine. It's all right. So the next ones are gonna be a little bit quicker. Except cool. for a song for Bob Dylan. So, uh, our number four, following the last one, is Trying to Get to Heaven. Which right. You got you to you sing Trying to Get to Heaven for us? Trying to get to heaven before they close the door. All right, thanks. So, that's you 1997, right? That's from the aforementioned comeback album. Correct. Time Out of Mind. Time Out of Mind, you got Remember it. This? Yeah, okay. So, Bowie, in the lead-up to when he's starting to record uh, Hours, which is a terrible 1999 album. Good album. Uh, <laughs> too bad because he got a couple of pretty good ones, and then he released that stinger, and then good ones get after that. Uh, in the lead up to that, he was recording some stuff, and this was one of the songs. And it's not clear they ever intended it to even be released, really, or if it was just kind of him like messing around the studio, or if he thought it'd be on hours. I don't know. But he did record a cover of Train, and this would be, you know, obviously very recent. He's recording it in 1998 of a song from 1997. Uh, it's online. It's awful. Great. So bad. Great song. <laughs> There's like all these. <laughs> Stuart Simpson, <laughs> but it's like laid back because ours is an album of like laid back. I don't know, feeling stuff with washes of synth underneath. Uh, it's it's a bad album. We'll get to it some other time, I'm sure. I just want to so say that, that's our complete Bowie covering. Okay, deal. okay. Now, a couple other quick things in here. These are All just right. shorter things. Quick hits. Um, so Bowie is one of his, his very last projects. You know, he released his last album, Black Star, in 2016. 
uh, three days before he died. And then he also worked on a, he really did a musical where he did the music and he helped, he co-wrote the musical called Lazarus. Right. Well, this musical, apparently he had been working on in some form like 10 years beforehand also, and it got abandoned at the time. So the time before he was working with uh, an author named Michael Cunningham, who I'll admit I'm not super familiar with this work. His most famous uh, book is The Hours, which I have heard of that one. Oh, yeah, sure. I haven't haven't read any of his work, I'll admit. But the two of them were working on this musical in like 2005 or so. Um, And Bowie came to Michael Cunningham with five main ideas for what he wanted out of this musical. First one, it should include aliens. It should. Okay, fair enough, it's Bowie. It should. Second one, it should take place in the future. It should. Okay, fair enough, it's Bowie. Third one, it should include Emma Lazarus, who was this poet. Mm. Who she wrote the, the, the poem that's on the um, Statue of Liberty that give me your poor oh. your huddled man. Yeah. But she's not very well respected as a poet. Like Nobody oh. you know, really cares about her. And that was part of the point for him, was this like very well-known, popular poet that no one really cares about anymore. Like No one teaches her in colleges or anything. So that was number three. Number four, it should include mariachi music. Definitely. Because what? why not? What mariachi music. Okay. And the fifth one, and most compelling, particularly for this podcast, is that this is set in the future, and the idea was that it was after Dylan had died. <laughs> and that someone, and that somebody discovers this like hidden cache of um, never-released Dylan music. What? That would be the music for the musical, and all that music was to be written by, by Dave Bowie. That is bizarre. Isn't it bizarre? That's crazy. But I... But don't you, at least I, I desperately want to hear this this music that he never wrote in the style of Bob Dylan. Oh, man. Like I wish Bob he had done that craziness. so bad. Oh, man. So it was, they were like a third of the way through writing it. Uh, Bowie's going to do all the music, but they were writing the script together. Um, so yeah, I know a third or half, somewhere in there. And uh, and then Bowie was getting really sick at the time, and he like had to take a break from it. They just never really, got, never really came back to it. Wow. And so then in when Bowie finally did the Lazarus musical, some of this stuff is still in there. Like, it is about an alien in the future. <laughs> yeah. Future-ish. I don't know. It's like, we'll get to that some other time. It's, it's a sequel of sorts to his movie, his 1976 movie, The Man Who Fell to Earth. Right. Um, Emma Lazarus does show, well, like, she's referenced a little bit there, and the name of it is Lazarus, so there's a little bit of mention there. No mariachi music and no dead Dylan, no mentions of Dylan whatsoever. So only so. the good stuff got cut out. Only the good stuff got cut out. Only the weirdest stuff got cut out. <laughs> So there's that. Now, going forward here, my one, all the stuff I find is about Bowie's, like Bowie towards Dylan. But there is one case of Dylan approaching Bowie that I can find. Okay. And that is that Dylan actually asked Bowie to produce Infidels. Yes. Tell us a little bit about Infidels. Okay, so Infidels was considered at the time a comeback album for Dylan. So he had... What had happened is he had done Desire in 1976, and he had done the Rolling Thunder review, and then he descended into um, his righteous Christian phase. He got born again, and he did three albums um, in this style, and he toured the world um, from 19... This is where the enthusiast comes out and not the expert. I want to say 1980 through 1982, let's say. And um, on his last of his Christian trilogy, um, he had... He cut, you know, a couple of the songs he had moved away from explicitly being like fundamental Christian music, uh-huh. um, and and did a couple more kind of different songs, and then he abandoned the Christian, um, the full on Christian front, and he went uh, back into the studio to make a pop album, and that was that was Infidels. So my guess is that he was he was kind of casting about. He ended up with okay. uh, 
He ended up with Mark Knopfler, the guitarist of Dire Straits. Okay. Because um, he... I, from what I read, he asked Dylan first, or sorry, he asked Bowie first, yeah. and Bowie turned him down. Then he asked Elvis Costello, who turned yeah. him down. Yeah. And then he asked Frank Zappa, who turned him down. Well, that would have been Any great. one of those would have, made, would have made a much more interesting story than the guy from Bear Streets. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I can kind of see this. If this is big pop album, 83 is when Bowie broke into the superstardom. That's right. when he released, uh, he released Let's Dance early in the year. And so I wonder if it's in the wake of that. Dylan was like, hey, I heard this guy on the radio. I think you know who he is. Uh, yeah. Let's ask him. There's a period in the 80s where all of a sudden Dylan, um, whether it was financially motivated or he was just kind of tired of um, being lapped, you know, commercially. Because uh-huh. even his worst albums throughout the 60s and 70s, like they sold like three to four million copies. Like okay. people could not get enough of Dylan. Um, <laughs> but, he, but he killed it. He killed his popularity with the, with the Christian trilogy. Um and so I think he wanted back in the mix. And but what, what he ended up with, we'll definitely talk about it in 1983, what he ended up with was sort of like a reggae album. Um, <laughs> it, got, it got good reviews, and I think people were so desperate to have him not be doing this Christian trilogy anymore that they were like, hey, whoa! Hey, whoa! Whoa, whoa hey, what, what is this? There's some Caribbean tinges on this. <laughs> oh, it looks like he recorded it in a music studio. Amazing! Um... So yeah, that, so, that was that. In the interest of time, we're gonna keep we're gonna keep rolling here. Yeah, we're at forty five. Because the, the the last big thing here that is that Dill or I'm sorry, I'm getting them all mixed up here. In nineteen seventy two, no nineteen seventy one, nineteen seventy one, Bowie released a song called "Song for Bob Dylan." Yeah, <laughs> imagine on that. His, on Hunky Dory. Yeah, which he doesn't get more explicit than that. We're saving it for last. And uh, the song, at first, like, it's, it's an obvious like sort of homage to a song for Woody. Correct. The song for Woody Guthrie. Yep, that's right. That Dylan, okay. that Dylan wrote and recorded. It was his first original song on an album, on his first album. Okay. He visited Woody Guthrie, um, who had Huntington's disease and was dying in a New York hospital. And Dylan came out to New York to see him. That was why he came to New York in the first place. Okay. And he wrote Song for Woody, which is a very wonderful um, and affecting song, especially for his first go-around. So there you go. So Bowie's got Song for Bob Dylan, which um, it comes across at first as like, you know, a tribute. And, uh, you know, it's, he is, I was thinking, as Dylan. Hear this, Robert Zimmerman, I wrote a song for you. <laughs> but a strange young man named Dylan, with a voice like sand and glue. Which that's pretty good. That's metaphor, nice. So good one. A voice like sand and glue. That's pretty good, okay? Nice. You go for it. But then as it goes, uh, it kind of starts like haranguing Dylan to like get it together and get back in the, back in the game. Ah. Which it was a popular uh, pastime. Oh, for sure. In, in the early 70s. Yeah. And everyone's like, hey, Dylan, quit you know, quit doing whatever you're doing. Start being more relevant. Beat us all again. Oh, yeah. And so it goes from there, because there's other stuff like, um, what's that song, Hey, Bobby? And I was reading about the Dylan Liberation Front. Yep, yep. That's right, save, <laughs> save Dylan from himself. Yes. So, so Bowie's kind of like that. And then, in a typically <laughs> like Bowie move. So it starts out with like, hey, Dylan's so great. That's like, hey, Dylan, get it together. Yeah. That's like, hey, if you're not going to do it, fine, I will. Oh wow, thanks, Bowie. So I know it's got you know, this is this is Bowie. It's, a lot of got, co- yeah, lot of cocaine of, talking let's, here. Let's call it swagger. That's <laughs> swagger. That's uh, <laughs> <laughs> so basically saying like at the end of the song, like, fine, uh, if you're not going to lead them, I will. Which was pretty presumptuous considering he would only had one hit at that time, and it was like two years previous. And he wasn't part of the civil rights movement. 
And he wasn't part of the civil rights movement. <laughs> Got it. So, um, so there's that. And then, I mean, the year after then was Ziggy Stardust and actually became a gigantic star and started sure. getting people around and it was good. Big so time. I don't know. That's so interesting. Our, our last, my last that. part here is, you know, it, it comes across, like I said, with, with like Bowie is, uh, is doing the whole hero worship, but that's not exactly the case all the time. Yeah. I found one interview from 1976, um, in which, Bowie comes across as a super jerk here. And I'm pulling it off. Bowie could be a really jerk in interviews at times, which I know you said Dylan could be too. And uh, oh, so yeah. they definitely met a few different times. We found a picture, a really good picture of them from the 80s, which is great. But um, here, I'm just, this is a little, it's an interview from Playboy in 76. Says, this is just a, you know, a small part of it. Says, you're not noted for cordial relationships with under, other artists. Yet there was a rumor that you flew to Europe to spend a sabbatical with Bob Dylan. What about it? <laughs> says, that's a beaut. I haven't even left this bloody country in years. I saw Dylan in New York seven, eight months ago. We don't have a lot to talk about. We're not great friends. Actually, I think he hates me. Under what circumstances did you meet? Very bad ones. We went back to somebody's house after some gig at a club. We'd all gone to see someone. I can't remember who. And Dylan was there. I was in a very sort of verbose frame of mind. I just talked at him for hours and hours. Whether I amused him or scared him or repulsed him, I really don't know. I didn't wait for any answers. I just went on and on about everything. And then I said goodnight. He never phoned me. Did he impress you? Not really. I'd just like to know what the young chap thought of me. I was quite convinced that what I had to say was important, which I seemed to feel all the time. It's been quite a while since somebody really impressed me, though. Wow. Could another music musician impress you? Ricky Ricardo, maybe. <laughs> 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 all right, uh, I have, I have, can I just say a few things about this? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah I, think, I think that you are right that um, Bowie did not, like, worship Dylan. No. Um, but it sounds like he, he thought an awful lot about him, and it sounds yeah. like yeah, there was a little bit of a – and Bowie was not alone in this because Dylan was kind of like this father of like important modern music. Uh-huh. Uh, I think so many, so many musicians had a little bit of like a little brother thing going on, like – you know, it sounds yeah, like he's. Okay. It, sounds, it sounds like he's petulant. He's like, oh, he didn't impress me. He calls him a young uh-huh. chap, even though he's significantly older than him. Right. Um, he's more successful. Yeah, he, like he was, um, he was you trying know. to elevate himself. Exactly. Maybe keep in mind that this interview is from early 1976, so Bowie was probably do it. Did it from he probably did the interview from his swimming pool full of cocaine. Sure, and there's that for sure. <laughs> so there's that. Right. So you didn't trust about anything that Bowie said in nineteen seventy six. And Bob had this first Bob had this firstborn thing where he just didn't respond to any of that stuff. He never sniped at people in the press or whatever. Like he just brushed them off. Uh-huh. So who knows how that that I would have loved to have been a flower on the wall for that awful meeting it sounds like they had. Oh man. Bowie just talked for hours and didn't <laughs> I don't know. Couldn't leave. Who knows what happened? Bowie, Bowie is not the most revol- reliable interviewee. Of course not. He definitely made stuff up a lot. So well, very yeah. explicitly and knowingly. Sometimes he just kind of more like shifted his the way he was thinking and obviously changed obviously he believed it and changed his own thinking and was like trying to say what the people wanted him to say in a way. Yes. Yeah. So that that is for these are the connections they have. They obviously met other times, but I can't find anything really juicy about any of those. Meetings. No, I mean it's kind of but incredible. What do, you, what do you see of those like big like overarching similarities? Their their work together. Well, I think know? I think that they are similar in some more like over overreaching ways. I think they're both like iconoclasts. They're both like mm-hmm. lone lone wolf kind of a thing. Like their vision was what was happening with them. Right. Um, 
Bowie collaborated with lots of people, but it was them collaborating with Bowie. Right. You know what I mean? And Dylan, he brought people into his orbit and cast them out and all this stuff, um, mm-hmm. you know, over and over and over again, um, producers, different musicians, but he has never, we'll get to it in 1976, but he never had a band. He never had a band that he chose except in that, okay. in those years. So like, it's just Dylan, like whatever he wants to do, that's what he's going to do. And it sounds like Bowie was, was similar in that way. Yeah. yeah. Um, they're both extremely restless, like name, mm-hmm. name another famous musician besides those two that moved from thing to thing so successfully. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I can't do it. it. You know, like Springsteen, no, he played rock and roll. Uh, Neil the, Young's the one that comes Neil to Young. the closest. For sure, for sure, and I think it's not, that, it's not quite the same thing. It's not quite the same, but there is definitely some similarities there. I mean, the Beatles did it, but they did it in such a short period of time. Yeah, I mean, they're only banned for about eight years. So. Correct. Um, and then these more modern guys, you know, like it just—it's not the same. These guys had it's Bowie and Dylan well, had like forty, fifty-year going on careers. Mm-hmm. Where it's hard—it's hard to see if. If there are people going today that are going to have those types of careers, it's doing the same thing. Although, to be fair, both Dylan and Bowie had multiple uh, reinventions and returns. You know, the big right. the comeback. They both had multiple comeback albums. Right, and other people and from so, their other people from their era are either you know long mm-hmm. dead or being you know dummies, like they're the Rolling Stones or something, right. um, who have just to me have like tarnished. <laughs> Everything they just have it. They, they just, they're, they're insistent on continuing to go when they had nothing to say and nothing else to do. Like is right, and they're like, "We're still the Rolling Stones." Or how many of these guys are just like the Who? I've just been a touring band oh. for like thirty-five years. You know. I mean, could you still like guess, love you know, the I, Who? I, I, I wonder about some of these more like unique. Like I'm trying to think of modern artists that have the potential to become like that. I guess I think of a guy like Beck or somebody like Bjork who would have the potential to. To make these multiple multiple comebacks and be relevant again years later yeah. and do all kinds of stuff. Right. But there aren't a lot of them I feel like even have the potential and they're definitely not there yet. Well the world has changed, you know, like rock is not the currency of pop right. culture anymore. Right. I mean, yeah, maybe it'd be somebody like Kanye West or something, it'd be one of these people that go out for fifty you, years or something and You might be right about I know. that. I had no idea. Well, we'll just have to live another fifty years and find out. <laughs> and find out. We'll do. All right. Well, for our, for our next episode, we are going to dive into the year 1976. We are. And we're going to take a very explicit look at just this year and really try to figure out, you know, this year was, this this podcast was just kind of an introduction. Next time we're going to really determine who was better in 1976. Who and won that give, year? We're going to give the prize to one of the two of them. Yeah, we have to. We have a point, we have a point system. We're, well, we have a, a stupid, elaborate point system. But we need probably one. probably will never be properly explained. We need or that point system. It'll be great. Because if Charlie and I have to decide on these border years, because I think 1976 could go either way. If we have to decide, we're just we're just gonna like we're gonna come to blows over the phone somehow. Over the phone somehow. And it won't be nice to listen to. <laughs> no, it won't. So on that note. So on that note, thanks for listening, and. Catch you next. Catch you on the flip side, or we'll, uh, come up with some stupid. We'll, s- phrase we'll see you in the year nineteen seventy six. Hang loose. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you in nineteen seventy six. That was better. That was really yeah. good. Bye. Bye. <laughs>